If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This week's our very first double episode. History is full of extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like Grandma's Recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape our culture and created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week, we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeart, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, your fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. And Harold, we've had a lot of people reaching out to us asking for more content, more podcasts. But the thing is, we're actually putting out more content, but it's not on our podcast. Right. So um, we have a YouTube page. We have Instagram, Facebook, um, Twitter. And we're putting out videos on on Instagram and uh, Facebook and YouTube. So if you'll go and follow us after this podcast, just go to YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the bell so you'll be notified every time we upload a new uh, video. And right now we're doing a series on the Hatfields and McCoys, uh, doing videos on those. And they're not very long videos, they're short videos. And then we're also putting out articles on Facebook. So make sure to follow us and friend us on Facebook. That way they can keep up, you can kind of keep up with all the material that we're putting out that's not necessarily covered on the podcast. So, Harold, are we going to do Kentucky Today in Kentucky History? No, not going to do it tonight because we got two subjects, Brian, and they're going to press us for time. So okay. So we'll, we'll do two separate little stories here. Okay, tonight. now, but real quick before we get into it, you're on your third build. <laughs> well, <laughs> tell, tell me, tell us, tell everybody what you've gotten into now. Well, we, after the podcast tonight, we're going to go down to shoot some video of this, and uh, it's <laughs> a uh, probably a pretty ambitious project for me, but... Uh, if you don't fool with this stuff, you might not understand, but when things come available that are extremely rare and hard to find, you have to get on them when you can. And the opportunity presented itself. So I've got a 1925 WS uh Speedster that we're working on in the shop, and tonight we're going to go down and we're going to show you that. And, and that was originally a fire truck. Well, it start, yeah, it started out, they built, WS Knott was from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They started out building trucks. And they, they did a lot of subcontracting on engines and transmissions and all those things that a lot of other companies made. And so they just used this chassis and the frame, and they would put anything you wanted on it. Well, back in the day, back in the early 1900s, when they had the great race from Paris to Peking, China, and mm-hmm. the great race across the United States, yeah. speed wasn't as much as importance as endurance. So these big, heavy 
truck chassis and big heavy built things were made into speedsters and they would believe me they will go fast but so they could handle the punishment they would handle the i mean they went through rivers and it's amazing so we'll talk about that maybe i'll do a podcast sometime on the great american race okay so when you get these finished then what we'll do is we'll line them up you get one i get one we'll drag race around through perival we're going to race and and and, 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 we'll see if we can get that video yes if not it may end up on cops anyway right and and if we live we'll get it on video (laughs) okay right so what two subjects are, are we going to cover tonight? Two very, very different subjects, Brian. And, and have we you, we haven't talked about this at all, have we? No. We want our listeners to know, Brian, do, we don't rehearse this. So when Brian sits down to talk to me, he has no idea what's coming. Because basically I represent the listeners. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to ask and, questions and, that the listeners may have. Right. And it's not because of any other reason. We want it to be spontaneous. And we I, I want him to ask me questions that – our listeners would ask. So that, that helps us. And all of my great jokes are spontaneous too. Yeah, I yeah. Don't His plan great wit is not practiced. <laughs> <laughs> and and, it, and we could tell. Yeah. <laughs> so, so two subjects tonight, we're going to do Mike Fink, which is a le- legendary Mississippi river, uh, character. Okay. And another is totally different. And it's a Kentuckian from Bowling Green, Kentucky named psychic by the name of Edward Casey. Wow. So we're going to get deep into Two little worlds here. Okay. Uh, Mike Fink is a subject that uh, I've, I've, I've thought about doing. There is so little known about him as far as his parents, his real genealogy, his history. And I would say that Mike Fink is probably as much legend as he is anything. Okay. How much of this is true, no one will ever know. Yeah. But it was popular in that time, in the early 1800s, especially with the newspapers in the East, if they could get a hold of a character like this and write stories that would entertain people in our Eastern cities that didn't see the frontier, didn't right. live that kind of life, it was very popular. So he's he's one of these guys. Now, he's been described as a hard drinker, a gambler, a fearless fighter, and best known for his practical jokes, which... Some of them you all might not think is too funny for the victims of the joke. <laughs> this depends on if you're giving or receiving, right? Exactly. He was kind of a symbol of an uncouth frontiersman. Uh, he lived a transient life, never had a home that we know of. He didn't. He may have had women in his life. He may have had wives. We know he had a daughter. We don't know a lot about any of his domestic life, so that's all kind of a mystery to me and anything I could find out. Um some of it, some of these antics, the things that he did, like I said, can be more fiction than fact. I find some of them a little bit hard to believe. Now he exaggerates things, but anyway, uh, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, around seventeen seventy seventeen eighty. We don't know exactly when or where, just in that area. Uh, that's Western Pennsylvania. That's a pretty rural, uh, wild frontier place. Uh, actually, it wasn't. It was Fort Pitt was where he was, the area where he was raised. Now, that's what we know today is Pittsburgh. But uh, in his day, that was an area where you had several Indian tribes. You had Delaware, Shawnee, Mingo, Mohegans. They all dealt with the British there before the Revolutionary War. So he grew up in this environment of, of, of the white man's world and the red man's world and the frontier. Uh, the riverboat men of that time were tough people. Mm-hmm. Now, physically, th- now th- again, we got to remember where we're talking about in time, Brian. This was before steam. So there were no steam engines this early. Okay. So if you got what you basically did is floated down the river 
Um, and if the river current wasn't too strong, you could paddle against the river, but I don't think you'd want to do that very far. Right. So basically you're talking about keel boats and, and, and when we talk about river boats in this story, for the most of it, folks were talking about things that are not powered. Okay. Um, they were traders, outlaws, settlers, all kinds of folks that came through Fort Pitt. Um, this is the confluence of the Allegheny, Monongahela, and the Ohio River. So Fort Pitt was a key location to control these rivers. And for military uses, the British recognized that very early. And so that we knew that that was a place that they needed to control to basically control commerce going up down the river. Um, the keelboats and the flatboats uh, were probably the strongest built crafts in the river. These things would hit rocks. They had to go over rapids. You see the, the locks and the system of mm -hmm. dams and things that we people see today, they don't yeah. realize that that wasn't there then. But it right. started early, but it wasn't there then. Um, he was a rough-and-tumble guy. He was a natural Indian scout. He was uh, he knew Indian sign. He knew how to hunt. Uh, and he became a legendary shot. Now, this is, this is a part of him that is ingrained deeply in him is that he shot his way out of everything. <laughs> we'll talk about more about that. But he was so good that when they had the shooting matches, after a while they banned him from competing because people, if they saw he was there, they wouldn't shoot. They'd just say, just forget it. I, I can't beat him. Yeah. So it hurt the shooting matches, so they banned him from shooting. Uh, he hated farming. He wasn't, a, he wasn't a man of the land at all. At an early age, he started boating, and he bought a boat. He purchased, actually, in 1810, he purchased two keelboats. Now, Brian, if he was born in 1780, he would have been only 20 years old, right? Yeah. So if he was 77, he'd be 30 years old. I tend to think he was... Well, by then, most time, by 20, most people had already graduated Harvard. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and started families and everything. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and we don't know a lot about his life, and this isn't a whole account of his life, but right. we know this incident in 1810, he purchased two keelboats, and he started the transport business. Now, I don't know exactly how that worked then. I assume you loaded with goods, bourbon, tobacco, whatever, floated down, maybe all the way to New Orleans. I don't know. That's where the market was for a lot of Kentuckians in, at this time. But uh, the, what odd about this period of time for him was the river level dropped. To the, it, it must have had a severe drought. The river level dropped to the point it was travel was impossible by keelboat. Okay. There was enough water in the river. Um, so what, you know, how he made a living, <laughs> he would, he would basically have like a wild west show type shooting contest and he would, he would shoot whiskey uh, cups of whiskey off people's heads. So he was kind of like a wild Bill Cody yeah. and those kinds of shows. And yeah. he would, he would actually gamble, you know, they would bet with him. He couldn't light a match or he could do this or that. And he made, you know, a pretty good living just being a wild man, basically. <laughs> and so he was six foot three. He weighed 180 pounds. He had blue eyes and olive skin. And he was described as strong as any man around. He was just a specimen of a man. Full grown man. Yes. Now, if you ever got on a riverboat and those keelboats, and I've been up to one, I've I actually got to see a, a real keelboat one time, got to walk on it. That thing is so heavy the oars to move just to navigate that thing all day long on a river would wear a normal person out. 
And that's why I'm sure more than, more than one person did it. But it was absolutely a job. And that's where his strength came from. You know, hauling stuff. Right. You know, those guys were tough. He was called a half-horse, half-alligator. <laughs> <laughs> now, because he was tough in the water <laughs> and he was tough on land. And he, that, 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 that name uh, actually is very common in this area. Uh, I mean, in this time, excuse me. There was a song written by Samuel Wadsworth, composed called "The Ballad uh, of Kentucky," and or excuse me, "The Battle of New Orleans," and it was about the Kentucky troops. And then this was composed about 1820, and it was about the Kentucky troops fighting the British down there. And they, and one of the stanzas of the song said, "The hunters of Kentucky, uh, half horse, half alligator," and it became wildly popular. Hmm. And even Andrew Jackson himself used the song when he ran for president in 1828. So wow. now if you, and we can take a picture and do this on the Facebook if you'd like, Brian, but they even made Bowie knives in England with half horse, half alligator imagery on the pommel because really? that was such a popular moniker. So huh. yeah, it's it was a common thing then, very rare for us to know of anything about it today. Um. <laughs> there were so many tales told about him. Um, it's hard to dis- discern between what's fact and what's fiction. Um, again, he never married that we know of. But um, he, one of the reasons he was known for all his girlfriends and associates, people was with him. He would he would show off by putting a cup of bourbon on their head and shooting the cup off their <laughs> head for money. <laughs> now, that's true love <laughs> that might explain why he had didn't have a wife my, I don't my wife would never go no, for that no, no. <laughs> now, well, you know i don't know if you ever missed i don't you know you, <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't, you never hear of it but <laughs> this is funny i'm sorry but <laughs> if i can get through this without laughing but he had a daughter <laughs> And they described her as a huge woman. <laughs> now, if he was a big guy, she was a big guy. And it, it was said of her that she could whistle out one corner of her mouth, eat out of the other, and scream with the middle. <laughs> <laughs> That's ta- multi-talented. You, you can't make it up. She's ambidextrous. Can't make it up. Yeah. Well, now, another tale one time, and they said it was his wife, that they were traveling along the river, and all of a sudden he pushed the keelboat over to the bank, and he got out, he took a wooden barrel, and he put it on the bank, and he piled a bunch of leaves in it, piled a bunch of leaves around it, and got his wife and said, I want you to get in the barrel. Didn't tell her why, so she got in the barrel, and then he shot into the leaves and set the leaves on fire and sat there and waited for her to come climbing out of the barrel. (laughs) And, of course, she came out out of sorts, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And he said, in his language, that'll learn you not to be winking at the other fellers on t'other boats. (laughs) 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 He put some thought behind that, didn't he? (laughs) Another tale is that he went hunting. And this is is really, this is classic Mike Fink tale. Who knows if it's true or not? It's not unreasonable, but it just sounds like, who would sit down and think of stuff like this? He went out deer hunting, and he spotted a deer. Uh-huh. And then he spotted an Indian stalking the deer. 
So he waited until the Indian was ready to shoot, and he aimed his rifle at the Indian. As soon as the Indian shot the deer, he shot the Indian. <laughs> it's not funny in a way, but it's funny. I'm sorry. And he brought the deer and the Indian back to the camp and bragged that he killed an Indian and a deer with one shot. <laughs> Man. Gosh. Oh, my goodness. There wasn't a modest bone in his body. He bragged to himself uh, – and, and you know he he said he was more god than human you know and yeah of course he was you know one of the one of the things he said was he said hurrah for me i'm a land screamer i'm a water dog i'm a snapping turtle i can lick five times my own weight in wildcats i can use up engines by the cord i can swallow men whole raw or cooked i can outrun out dance out jump out dive out drink out holler and out lick any white thing in the shape of a human being for 2,000 miles along the Mississippi River. <laughs> wow. Does that sound familiar Confident, to you? Confident, yeah. Does that sound familiar to you, any of that? He sounds like a, a, a WWE wrestler or something, you know. Well, do you remember the movie about the, uh, the, the Alamo and Davy Crockett? And there was a guy playing Davy Crockett on a stage, and Crockett was – he got real nervous because Crockett showed up at the theater to watch him. No, I haven't seen this. And, you know, it starts out talking like this. And so, anyway, oh. that was kind of common in that area. Era. Yeah. So who knows where it started. Uh, some of his pranks almost killed people. Um, <laughs> there was an old Indian named Proud Joe one day, and this guy wore a, a skull cap with a feather <laughs> and made a perfect target. You know? <laughs> and, of course, now, Fink was in the river on his boat, and old Proud Joe was walking along the bank. And, and Fink said, watch this. And he told some of his companions, I'm going to shoot that feather and skin that cap off his head without hurting him. So he dropped, uh, he, he dropped his knee, took a steady aim, and shot. And the Indian hit the ground. Well, all the people that were there on the bank and the people on the boat gasped and said, you know, he's, he's killed him. Yeah. You know? In a few minutes, the Indian jumped up and took off running. <laughs> he was just playing dead in case he was going to fire a second yeah, round. <laughs> he, he was just playing dead. Another was that, and he was kind of cruel, you know, kind of. He was cruel, let's face, let's face it. There was a slave walking along the riverbank on a boat, and he did him this kind of the same way, except he noticed that the guy had really big feet. So he shot his heel off <laughs> and said that would Man. make you <laughs> – and hollered and said, that'll make your boots fit better. <laughs> well, now that was a little bit over the top. Yeah. So he was brought before a judge, and he only had to pay a, a fine to the poor guy that he shot in his medical bills, but he also had to buy him a new pair of boots <laughs> that he ruined. <laughs> oh, me. Oh. He, he said he could drink a gallon of whiskey in 24 hours. He could take a flat boat down the falls of the Ohio at Louisville. He could ride a moose like a horse. He could... Uh, drown an attacking wolf in a river, battle pirates at Cave in Norrock, Illinois, and whip any man <laughs> on the Mississippi River. <laughs> now, here's an interesting story about him. He said when steamboats came about, he didn't care for steamboats. He wasn't he wasn't that kind of river pilot. He never took to steamboats. He never that's something I guess maybe he didn't have any education or training and he didn't. Maybe he was afraid to. You know, I don't know. But anyway, he uh, in one instance there, he, they were on a, a a real narrow river channel, and he was pushing a keelboat down the river, and here come a steamboat up that same channel. Well, he told him. He said, "I'm not giving way." 
Well, you know, a steamboat can't just stop. And right. It, you know, it, the momentum will carry it into it. So he stood his ground, and that steamboat hit him dead on. Well, he picked the wrong steamboat because it had been loaded down with a lot of lead yeah. for bullets and stuff, <laughs> and it sunk him pretty hard, and he he, he didn't win that battle at all. Uh. So, In 1822, he left the river. His whole life he'd spent plying the river, making a living, and he started trapping. And I think the steamboats had a lot to do with yeah. that. So he went as far as Yellowstone. He went out west hunting. Uh, but his hard living and drinking started to take his toll on him. And some of his companions and him to entertain themselves and, 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 and dare one another to do certain things. This shooting the cups of whiskey off the head came up. He kept doing that his whole life. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a, you know, you could imagine these guys about half drunk shooting. Yeah, whiskey off the top of them, how dangerous that would be. Dangerous if you wasn't drinking, but if, even more if you were. Um, one of them was a fellow by the name of Carpenter, and uh, he took a cup of whiskey, put it on his head, and there was a black spot on the cup, and that was his aiming point. And he said he shot, and he missed his mark, and he killed Carpenter. Mm. And he said, as he took a fair bead on the black spot on the cup, he said, "I he said I took as fair a bead as I ever took at a squirrel's eye." Now, sometime later, another trapper by the name of Talbot was was had witnessed this and was with him, and he heard Fink say that he really shot Carpenter intensely, and Talbot took out a pistol, and shot Fink and killed him. Really? Yes. Now, we don't know exactly when that happened, but historians say somewhere between 1828 and 1844, no one knows for sure when exactly or where. We don't know where he's buried. We don't know what, you know, we don't know where, we don't know anything about him. Yeah. Hmm. And that was the end of Mike Fink as a river bourbon. Wow. Well, I tell you, I'm going to stop on the way home and buy me a bourbon barrel. Yeah. So when Lori listens to this episode, she will know why that bourbon barrel's sitting in the garage, just just waiting to put it on. To put her, her to put it, yeah, no. put her, to put oh, her in it, yeah, and well, surround I, it with leaves in case she gets out of line. So, uh, I'll, I'd love to come watch that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I bet you will. <laughs> All right, the second story we're going to do tonight, folks, is something totally different. Something I have no knowledge of, really, as far as. Uh, I've never read about this guy a whole lot until um, I started reading about looking at different things to do our podcast with. And um, our subject tonight, second subject, is Edgar Casey, the Sleeping Prophet. Brian, do you ever – do you? I'm familiar with him. Okay. Just, I mean, you know, it's kind of common, I guess, because he's here from – he's from Kentucky. Right. And, um, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts – and I listen to a lot of those that are on the fringe, you know, like the Art Bell, like what he used to have. I, I uh-huh. love those type of podcasts. And, and he, he always comes up, you know, occasionally in, in those type of podcasts and stuff. So I'm kind of familiar with what. Well, I'm fascinated by things I don't know anything about. Um, and it challenges us to think. Uh, and how much of this, I, I really, to be honest with you, I don't know what to believe. But when things happen and people witness it and it's been documented over time and even people may have seen things themselves and it's not, you know, trickery or anything, uh, it makes you think. I think there's a lot about our world we know so little about. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is is a con, too. Um, 
I can't remember what was the guy that's always on Johnny Carson and different shows. Crescent, amazing Crescent. You know, and he would debunk a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was common back then because, you know, people didn't understand things the way we do today. Right. And um, so I think it afforded them the ability to be able to pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes. Right. So, yes, I, I do believe there's a, there's a lot out there that we don't understand mm-hmm. uh, spiritually or, you know, in that that realm, realm right. that's not in the physical. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, you know... I, some of it, I'm like, yeah, I can believe, yeah, maybe that happened and maybe it didn't. So I'm right. not, I'm not sold on it 100. percent Right. Well, uh, born in 1877, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. He was uh, Edgar was one of five children. His dad was a farmer and a businessman. He had a average upbringing. There wasn't anything different about him. There wasn't anyone around him that would have influenced him that we know of or he ever mentioned that would have led him down a path of this. Uh, he was a little different. Uh, from the beginning, he had a free spirit. Uh, he was kind of an independent child. Uh, he played with imaginary play, playmates that they noticed at an early age. He had quite an imagination. Um, he wasn't necessarily a really good in school. Uh, he wasn't real bright as far as, you know, every, probably just average student. Mm-hmm. Um, but he believed those playmates to be real. And now, as an adult, when he when they ask him about that, that he believed that they were spirits who were sent to frighten or threaten him. Huh. So uh, that kind of wasn't wasn't expected what answer that I would have thought that he would have said. Uh, when he lost his grandfather, who's I think his name was Tom, uh, he spent a lot of time with him. We'll talk about that later. He moved to the farm and everything, but. This grandfather, and it's, I can relate to this because I was very close to my grandfather on my parent, my dad's side, and uh, his name was Tom, by the way, and uh, I spent a lot of time with him, and I enjoyed, and I, maybe that's where I enjoy doing stories and everything because Papa told a lot of that stuff, but you become really close to these people, and when he died, um, they found him in the barn talking to him and having a conversation. It's like he could see him and talk to him, and no one else could. Yeah. And this was when he was just a young boy at a very early age. Uh, where did his powers come from? How did it happen? You know, where did this – there was a story of him, uh, and it would, I don't know exactly what age he was, but he was sitting on a board fence, and he fell, accidentally fell off backwards, and he hit his head on a board that had a nail in it, mm. and it punctured his cranium. And man, that had to hurt. Oh, you know. Oh, my goodness. And uh, they said after that, he became, had, it, it, it brought out his psychic abilities. Now, Edgar, he, he never claimed that. He said that it came from God. But they, the family noticed a change in him after that accident. And now, he was raised in the Disciples of Christ Church, and at the age of 12, he had read the Bible 12 times. Hmm. That's that's. You know, that's so, you know, he wasn't started reading when he was one, so he's yeah. had to read it through yeah. several times. Uh, he had a very amazing vision. Uh, he, he, was, he said he was visited by a female angel who asked him what he wanted most, and he responded to help others. So that became his life work, really. 
Um, he, he really was a very compassionate man for other people, and we'll see this as we go through this story. He began to lose sleep. Uh, he was surprisingly, you know, like I said, not a good student. He had difficulty with homework. Uh, but one of the amazing t- gifts that he had was that he would take, <laughs> they said he was sitting at the table one night and trying to do his work, and he got tired, and he just laid the book down and fell asleep, and he laid his head across it, and when he woke up the next day, that he could recite every word in the book. Wow. And that earned him the name, The Sleeping Prophet. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of where that came from. He did a lot of work actually sleeping, mm-hmm. and and but it mentally drained him. At the same time, it's hard for us to understand. It's impossible for us to understand. Yeah, he left school at the age of sixteen to help his grandparents. You know, which, like I said, his uncle or his uh, grandfather Tom, and but he didn't. He didn't like farming. Uh, after a while, when things settled down for him, they he got a job at a bookstore where he, where he met his future wife, and her name was Gertrude. They eventually married. In case he got into the insurance and the photography business, now there was an incident that uh, really changed things for him. And maybe he, we would have not known who he was today if this hadn't happened. But on one of his insurance sales trips, uh, Edgar lost his voice. He had a severe case of laryngitis, which lasted about 10 months. Wow. Um, and it, he had to quit his sales job because he couldn't talk. Yeah. But now he could still do the pictures, so he still took photos and, and worked with his wife to have a means of income. Now, there was this traveling <laughs> hypnotist in that area of around Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and his name was Hart the Laugh King. Huh. Isn't that a strange name for a hypnotist? Yeah. I can see this guy coming riding into town with a painted wagon. You can imagine what this yeah. looked like. Wearing a cape and a top hat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Selling the snake oil remedies. Yeah. But he actually um, he, he hypnotized Edgar, and he regained his voice temporarily. So was it a psychological reason his voice wouldn't return, or was it a physical reason? And then another local hypnotist by the name of A.L. Lane hypnotized him, and his return, his uh, voice returned for good. And that was in March of 1901. Hmm. So this uh, guy got interested in Casey. So he, uh, t- when, they, when he hypnotized Casey, Casey took over the hypnosis and started healing the guy that, had ailments that was put him under hypnosis. True. So Lane, you know, had had uh, had stomach had a stomach disorder or something, and Casey helped him get over that as he helped Casey get over his laryngitis. Huh? Now, isn't that wild? That's crazy. So then the guy asked him, said to join him, and and they would do this practice together, and Casey would read what was wrong with the guy and tell Lane how to treat it, and Lane would treat it, and successfully treat people but for some reason um that didn't work out and um, so many of his ventures didn't and and we don't know fully why we don't know i don't really know the details of that but his one of his first patients was a lady by the name of amy excuse me who had suffered from convulsions for two years and casey recommended an osteopathic therapy for the girl, which uh, Lane was trained in, so they worked together. And Casey's notoriety from healing this girl just spread like wildfire. And so he began to get bombarded with people wanting him to yeah. to help them. 
1903, Gertrude and Edgar started a family, uh, and they had children and operated a photography business in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, his former partner, Lane, had started the Southern School of Osteopath path, uh, Science in Franklin, Kentucky. So Edgar moved on, the other guy moved on, and they continued. Um, now, there was an incident in Bowling Green when, when Casey lived there that kind of changed him as well. Um, the Bowling Green Literary Club, which had been in existence a long time, and there was a group of doctors and educated folks that were, um, uh, I assume, to be like the Anaconda Club of Danville, Kentucky, had been right. around a long time. Yeah. And there was a doctor there by the name of Blackburn who persuaded Casey to give a public reading before the club in 1906. Uh, a handful of doctors wanted Casey himself to, to go into a trance, and they wanted to test him to see that if it was real or whatever right, reason. Right, right, right. So they they <laughs> pricked him with pins about his body and actually cut his nails on one of his forefingers just to see if he was aware of it. Uh, and upon awaking, he he vowed to never be tested like that again. Huh? There was something about it that very much offended him. Wow. Uh, he he severed any interest with the medical community for a long time because of that. Uh, he continued in his uh, photography business, uh, but he questioned himself: Did he? Did God want him to heal people in the way that he'd been doing it? Right. Um, in around 1909, several things happened in his life: misfortunes. Uh, there were two fires that destroyed his Bowling Green studio. Um, his partner, who was with him in the venture, uh, withdrew from the business. In 1911, Casey's second son died of whooping cough and colitis. Hmm. Uh, Casey blamed himself for not starting readings on the boy. Uh, he never, he never, he blamed himself totally for that. Huh. Uh, in Christmas 1911, Casey cured a local doctor by the name of Wesley Kitchum, and the doctor summoned Casey for many of his difficult patients. So, in Bowling Green, this doctor had 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 got an interest and he he realized that you know this guy's for real he can actually help people yeah so they started a psychic reading corporation but the venture did not succeed um i can imagine that would be hard to do in that time wouldn't you yeah well you know you, you think if he's a psychic he would be able to see that it wasn't going to work out to begin with um from 1911 to 1923 casey did both readings and photography work and he conducted his readings. Now, th this is interesting to me. Um, number one, he started out in a self-induced trance. Okay. And answered questions about patients' medical condition. So if you went to him, he would put himself in a trance and, and discuss your problems in that, in that state. While he was in there, okay. Now, here's, here's what's really wild, Brian. His patients didn't have to be in his presence for him to do that. Really? Yes. Hmm. He could do it by distance. Uh, so it was kind of like a remote viewing. He was I, able to do it from... I, I, can you, how can you explain that? Yeah. Uh, his readings were full of biblical phrases and metaphors that reference Christian beliefs. Um, he would prescribe treatment, but the problem was a lot of the doctors didn't 
believe in him enough to carry out his treatments, which very much frustrated him. Yeah. Um, so in 1923, he traveled to Dayton, Ohio, and gave some metaf- metaphysical readings there. And there was a guy there that had was was impressed with him. And then things kind of start to change with him, the way he looked at things. He's, he started talking about things more than physical ailments. He started talk, talking about mental problems and uh, other issues that people had other than a physical ailment. Yeah. Psych- psychological things that he tried to work with them on. Uh, he, stole, he sold his photography business and was uh, there was a wealthy businessman from New York by the name of uh, Morton Blumenthal who opened the Edgar Casey Hospital in Virginia Beach, Virginia in 1928. And, you know, it wasn't a hospital of people like today would be approved by the American Medical Association. Right. These were people that were outside of the mainstream medical community. But evidently it worked extremely well for a short time because uh, people from all over the world poured in there. Hmm. Um, The problem was that the Great Depression hit in 1930, uh, and the, it, it, it doomed the business because yeah. people couldn't pay. Although they needed the services, they couldn't pay for them. They couldn't make financially make the hospital work from the way I understand what happened to it. Uh, a lot of times in his, in, there at that hospital, they would, he would prescribe strange cures for illnesses that people came to him. Things like turpentine and kerosene. Well, you know, I have seen, uh, you know, I, with with the homeopathic stuff that uh, I guess turpentine can cure a lot of different diseases. And basically, you know, in the conspiracy theory circle, you know, when the AMA come in and you had the homeopathic doctors and the doctors that were kind of funded by the big oil companies right. uh, when Rockefeller was taking over, uh, the American um, social, um, medicine, so medical association, you know, there was a big split and then all that stuff kind of got passed down. But I've known people say, well, when I was little, my grandmother, my great grandmother would give me turpentine. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember putting kerosene on wounds. My grandfather, I've seen him do it and I did it cause he did it and he lived to be 95 and he really didn't die of anything. He just wore out. The doctor said, yeah. So obviously, you know, these folks, whatever reason, but he also used a product called Jerusalem Artichoke. Never heard of it. It was a source of insulin and all kinds of just, I could have went through a bunch of it, but I didn't want to waste everybody's time with that. But there was just several things that really, you know, it's like, really? You know? <laughs> uh, like I said, 1930, the Great Depression hit, and Casey's dreams had come to a close. Um, you know, at that age, you had to start all over again. Oh, man. You know, he didn't have a photography business. He didn't have anything. So in the Great Depression, he had to go back to Kentucky and start all over again. And it's just kind of tragic. But, you know, I have a lot of respect for people like that. Sure. They get knocked down and they pick themselves back up and, and start moving forward again. And just to give you an idea how much this man did, it's, it's mind-boggling. In 29 years, he conducted 14,000 psychic readings. Wow and 900,000 documented transcribed text. That's almost a million. Man. He worked. He had to work all the time. Yeah. Now, you know, mentally draining, you can imagine the, the, the burden that he carried. In 1932, 
the Association for Research and Enlightenment, ARE, provided a safe house for some of Casey's transcripts, about 300,000 of them. So if I think that's the organization still around today, so you know, a person could go there and do that. Uh, Casey continued his work, and he was so besieged that he would schedule readings two years in advance. Man. Yeah, two years in advance. Uh, you, you had a waiting list to get to him. Um, in 1944, he collapsed of exhaustion. He I never, can imagine. He never recovered from it. And he died in 1945 at 68 years old. Wow. Uh, he is uh, recognized as the father of holistic medicine um, by the American Medical Association to this day. If, you're, uh, if you like to do research and like to see his grave, he's buried in Riverside Cemetery in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Uh, he died on January 7th, 1945, 68 years old. Wow. What a unique you know, American. I, there's a, you know, if you think back through history of people you'd like to sit down across from and just interview or talk to, he, he would be one of them because. Uh, you think he'd be hard to talk to? You know, I don't know. Well, think of yourself talking to him and what would you, I mean, a guy like that, he's able to tell you what you're going to say before you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean. It, it would be intimidating to me to sit down with somebody that's that brilliant and on a level that I can't comprehend. Yeah. And, and, but he, he got into a lot of his uh, psychic ability. He believed in a before life and an afterlife. And he believed that illnesses, some of the illnesses that came to people in this life was because of an illness they had in a former life. Hmm. And I can't, that's on a level I don't understand. Yeah, because, you know, I, I come at everything kind of from a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that some of that, that's that's where I have difficulty kind of buying into and believing. Right, so, right. Yeah. Uh, well, a little statistic, though, um, 86% was his success rate. Really? That's, that's, that's remarkable. That's high. Yeah. There was definitely something there. Now, what it was, I, I don't know. Right. All right. Thank you for being part of Uncommon History Podcast. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share our podcast with your friends. Leave a five-star review and comments. This will help others find our podcast. And you can now find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Uncommon History is produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford.